The photograph that we'll be uh, focusing on is here in the hallway. And it's not a very large picture, so I'll give you all just a moment to take a look at it before, um, before I start to talk. Being a native of California, I never wondered where you came from. Well, this is such a great story. Well, that's where I was going to start, oh because I think, I think when we hear the name Ghirardelli, yeah. we think of chocolate. Or perhaps we think of that San Francisco landmark, Ghirardelli Square, which has been a, a attraction for tourists and locals alike since 1964. But I think we're less likely to be familiar with the story of the intrepid Italian-American confectioner and businessman who made the name Ghirardelli a household word. So tonight, we'll spend just a few minutes talking about Mr. Ghirardelli and his, uh, his fascinating journey from his birthplace in Italy to um, the, West, the Western world and his um, business experiences in Northern California. He was born Domenico Ghirardelli in a town in Northern Italy, uh, Rapallo, which is near Genoa. His father was a modestly successful merchant, and as a teenager, he apprenticed at a very upscale confectionery in Genoa. And there he learned the, uh, the skills of the trade, making and selling sugar loaves, uh, producing candy, and the, all of the, um, the important parts of a confectioner's art. If you want to come closer, feel free, and if you want to walk down the hallway, don't, don't worry, you can go through, through the doorway. By the time, um, by the time uh, Domenico Ghirardelli was 20 years old, he was ready to go into business for himself. But the political climate in that region of Italy had been uh, troubled for some time, ever since the breakup of the Napoleonic Empire. And rather than try his hand in business in his homeland, he decided to strike out for the New World. And rather than go into North America, which had become more of a mecca for, for Northern European Protestant immigrants, he chose instead to, um, to make Latin America his destination, and he traveled to Montevideo, Uruguay, with his um, with his bride, and initially worked in a um, in a shop that uh, sold coffee and spices. Now the couple stayed there um, apparently for just a year, and then they made the very treacherous voyage around uh, Cape Horn to the west coast of Latin America and settled in Lima, Peru. Now, Lima had been a, really had been a mecca for Italian uh, gold uh, artisans and, um, and merchants uh, for some time, and so they found a very, uh, a very convivial community there. And, um, and now uh, Domenico Hispanicized his name, adopting the, uh, the you know, the, uh, the the, the Spanish pronunciation and became Domingo. So from this point on, he's Domingo Ghirardelli, and that's why there is that, that change. Um, he operates his, his establishment on the principal, just off the principal square in Lima, so he's got an ideal business location. And he ultimately ends up with a business neighbor, James Lick who is an American who has worked as a builder of pianos and, and, um, and operated a cabinet shop and cabinet trade. And ultimately, it is Mr. Lick that persuades Domingo Ghirardelli to, to move from Peru to 
to what is going to be the state of California ultimately. In 1846, Domingo's wife dies, and the following year he remarries um, a woman who is of per a Peruvian um, Spanish extraction, and she had an infant daughter at the time that they married, and the couple would later have seven children of their own. Well, in 1846 or 47, James Lick leaves Lima and goes to California to the San Francisco area and begins buying up land. He reportedly travels to California with 600 pounds of Ghirardelli's chocolate and clearly found a market for it there. He is in California at the time that gold is discovered at Sutter's Mill in January of 1848. And he writes to Domingo Ghirardelli and says, you, you've got to come, you've got to come to California. And so Domingo is reading reports in the Lima newspapers now that, of the discovery of gold. And like many others, sees this as an opportunity. So he leaves his his wife, his, his young family behind, and I think from reading birth dates that his wife was actually expecting their second child at the time that he left, and he sails to, to San Francisco and he arrives there on February 24th, 1849. And he makes his way to the California gold fields in the Jamestown, Sonoma area, and tries his hand at gold mining but recognizes very quickly that the opportunity to make money in California lies in providing provisions for those working in the gold fields. And so he very quickly establishes a tent, uh, basically a tent store um, and becomes a purveyor of general uh, merchandise. He is very soon, uh, and this tent store is in Stockton, California, he's very soon bringing shipments from San Francisco to Stockton and the business thrives. He then opens a store in, in San Francisco. He becomes a, um, a part owner in a hotel and a coffee house. So he's clearly taking full advantage of the economic, economic opportunities that this, that this bustling city, which of course is attracting people from all over the world who are hoping to strike it rich um, in the California gold mines. In 1851, he is described as one of the moneyed men of San Francisco, and he's worth an astounding amount of money. $25,000 is the figure that's attached. I won't even begin to figure out with inflation what that would be today, but that was a substantial sum. So he's riding high in 1851, and then catastrophe. A, a a fire sweeps through the city and destroys um, a substantial portion of San Francisco. This happens on more than one occasion. And so suddenly he's, he's left with, you know, with, with very little. Three days after the San Francisco fire, a fire sweeps through Stockton and he loses his enterprise there. But this is not someone who's going to take a, you know, sort of take a, a, a powder on this. He's back on his feet, he's marshalling his resources and consolidating his remaining assets and he's back at it. And in 1852, he opens what will be his chocolate manufacturing and begins to establish his, um, his preeminence as the chocolate purveyor on the West Coast. Keep in mind that chocolate is a perishable commodity. And in the time before uh, rapid transit, when there isn't a railroad link between the East Coast and the West Coast, there's only one um, chocolate manufacturing concern in the United States um, prior to Ghirardelli on the West Coast, and that's Baker's chocolate. 
uh, established in the 18th century in Boston. But Baker's chocolate can't make its way to California. It won't survive the overland trip, and it certainly can't make it make the sea voyage. So Ghirardelli, with his chocolate connections in Latin America and his, and his skill as a master chocolatier, is the person to make a go of it, and he does. There are others who, who go into the spice and coffee business, which are part of his enterprise, but no one can really touch him when it comes to chocolate. In 1853, his wife and children, um, his, the daughter from uh, the adopted daughter and then his, his two natural children come to San Francisco and join him. They, the family initially lives over the store, uh, very much in sort of an old European tradition. And as the opportunity presents itself and the business expands, they move to um, to progressively more advantageous locations. Um, the initial manufactory was um, on um, Stockton Street and in the neighborhood of what's now Chinatown. It was the Portsmouth Square area of San Francisco. The family, um, he builds a very, uh, a very impressive and beautiful home in Oakland where his wife and children go to live and he pays tribute both to his Italian heritage and, um, and the new country that has um, adopted him and that he has adopted by having a statue of Columbus on one side of the door and a statue of George Washington on the other side. Um, this is a man who is very proud of his Italian heritage and he finds a great community of Italian immigrants, many who have made their way to California via Latin America just as he has. So that's something that I found fascinating that there was actually this sort of this um, this midpoint on the way to California was this uh, community that had first uh, taken root in Latin America. Um, where to go from here? The, the really transformative moment I think in, in Ghirardelli's business career is part of a happy accident. Chocolate up until this point did not um, exist in powdered form. If you were going to have a chocolate beverage, it was a chocolate paste that was combined with liquid. There wasn't the technology or the know-how to produce a powdered chocolate. And um, as luck would have it, uh, bags of, of, of chocolate paste were inadvertently left hanging in a hot room um, at, the, at the business complex. And as a consequence, the, um, the, the fat, the, the cocoa butter, seeped through the bag onto the floor. And what remained was a greaseless residue. And it was discovered um, by Ghirardelli and, and his cohorts that by grinding up this uh, residue, one could produce powdered chocolate. So this made it possible to have hot cocoa that could, of course, be readily blended into, into milk. And it also created the possibility of baking chocolate. And this was not the perishable uh, chocolate bar with the, with the chocolate fat or cocoa butter in it that wouldn't survive. This was a powdered chocolate that had the ability then to be shipped um, wide distances. Now, Ghirardelli wasn't alone in his interest in chocolate. I mean, you can imagine that there were others that saw an opportunity here, and that simply spurred him um, and his sons, who joined the business with him, particularly his, his three sons, um, Domingo Jr., um, Joseph, and Louis. They all worked together with him. In 1868, there was a French chocolatier who sort of tried to muscle in on the trade, and he was focusing more on wholesale chocolate um, distribution rather than over the counterproduct, and Ghirardelli and his sons just uh, sort of redoubled their effort um, expanding their marketing. Now, the economic climate was, um, was not impervious to ups and downs, and there was a great 
uh, recession or depression that hit in 1870, which caused a lot of businesses to suffer, and Ghirardelli's was one of those. One must also remember that in 1869, the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad now meant that there was, it was easier for other competitors and for, for commodities to move to the West Coast, so you had to fight even harder. In 1870, he declared bankruptcy. He sold off um, assets, liquidated um, investment property, and once again, they redoubled their efforts and came back um, really stronger than ever. The, the centerpiece of their marketing continued to be the Ghirardelli's ground chocolate, initially marketed under the trade name of Broma, but later uh, marketed exclusively really as, as Ghirardelli's ground chocolate. Um, Mr. Ghirardelli lived to a, a ripe old age by 19th century standards. He retired from the business in 1889 and traveled back to Italy to his birthplace for an extended stay. Um, by this time, his, um, his, his son, uh, Domingo Jr., had taken over the presidency of the company and was running it effectively and had um, acquired the property that would become the centerpiece of the Ghirardelli manufacturing operation, which um, is the uh, spot along the San Francisco northern waterfront where Ghirardelli Square, if you've been to San Francisco, that was the property that they acquired. While Domingo was um, back in Italy, he sadly died, but he wanted to be buried in his other homeland in the United States. And so his wishes were honored and his body was brought back and he was buried in California. Now the company uh, remained in the family through successive generations and it was not until 1963 that it passed from, um, from family ownership. It was acquired by an uh, Italian-American uh, based Enterprise uh, Golden Grain Macaroni. If any of you have heard the advertisements of Rice Aroni, the San Francisco treat, well, that was the company that marketed Rice Aroni, and they were in a good position to acquire the company at a time um, when it was when it was ready for new for new management. The prior year in, 18, in 1918, 1962, was when. Uh, two very wealthy San Franciscans acquired the Ghirardelli Square property and went about the renovation and repurposing of that complex into really the first mixed-use um, imaginative redevelopment and preservation effort in the country. I mean, the Ghirardelli Square was really um, in the forefront of repurposing historic structures and, um, and not demolishing them in the process. So the Ghirardelli Square remains with, um, with the sign that everyone sees. Ghirardelli Chocolate is now owned by the Lint Company in Switzerland, and they um, have, I think, brought Ghirardelli back to prominence as, um, as a premier chocolatier. I think that Domingo would be proud to see his, um, his family's name associated now with, with premium chocolate, just as it was in the mid-19th century. To tell you just a little bit about the photograph, 
this um, has an interesting story because the photographer was um, another person who was lured by the siren song of gold in California. And he arrived in, in San Francisco exactly one month to the day ahead of Domingo. Uh, George H. Johnson first worked as a daguerreotypist in New York City, daguerreotypes being the first practical photographic process. But he arrived in San Francisco on January 24th, 1849, and he set up a daguerrean gallery in Sacramento. He was again relying on the patronage of those working in the gold fields uh, to make his living and he became very well established and made some of the most important early uh, daguerreotypes that document mining operations and the other uh, principal figures in California. Like Ghirardelli, his business uh, went through a devastating fire um, in, 18, um, in 1853 and at that point, he left Sacramento. He'd lost $15,000 worth of studio equipment and furnishings. He, so what remained, he took with him to San Francisco, set up in what proved to be even a more advantageous location, and ultimately had his pioneer gallery situated on Clay Street. So we know that that's how these two men, um, both seeking an opportunity for, um, for economic advancement and, and a new experience, found themselves in California. We don't know anything more about what brought them together than uh, the fact that Domingo Ghirardelli was clearly in, in search of a fine photographer to make his portrait and Mr. Johnson was more than happy to provide this little carte de visite photograph. Um, if you have any questions, we actually have the Ghirardelli family expert with us this evening. And so what I know about Mr. Ghirardelli, I really owe um, to Sidney Lawrence, who is the great, great grandson of Domingo Ghirardelli. Well, you know, you've actually asked the right question. <laughs> he didn't, but we did. <laughs> um, and Sydney is no longer, is, he is not associated with the chocolate business. In fact, he actually has been a Smithsonian colleague um, and as an independent scholar as well. But we we don't know if we have enough for everybody, so it's kind of family hold back, so, and, and we don't encourage, you know, eating in the galleries. But if you would like to help yourself to um, a chocolate from... <laughs> I'll take Ghirardelli chocolate over rice and roni any day, but... And thank you so much. Oh, well, this was a fun topic to dig into. Thank you all for coming. Every picture in this exhibition has a story, and Ghirardelli is just one of this, you know, one member of this fascinating cast of more than 100 figures from the West that Frank has brought together. So if you've enjoyed his story, I think you'll find that there are many more that are compelling as well, so, so dig in. And the, the uh, exhibition catalog is for sale in the museum shop, and, so, and there's what it looks like, so you can keep that in mind too. And the Portuguese website also has, um, has a section about it.